Do you want to start a thriving real estate career, but don't know where and how to start? Do you want to become a successful realtor or investor, but lack the required knowledge and skills? Gear yourself up with the best and actionable advice here on The Real Estate Rundown. Tune in as Shannon Robnett talks with industry veterans about all kinds of asset classes, market trends, challenges, management techniques, and success stories. Listen to informative discussions with valuable tips that will serve as the foundation for your incredible real estate venture. Now, here's your host, Shannon Robnett. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Real Estate Rundown. We are back in Boise. We spent the last week on the road in Salt Lake City. We did over 80 interviews at the Best Ever Conference. But today, I've got a friend of mine on the show. I was uh, hanging out with him in Phoenix. It's amazing to hear what this guy's story is. He has really worked hard to get where he's at. He's still doing his W-2, but he does it because he wants to. We're going to dig in on why my buddy Vince Rodriguez is continuing to keep his day job while he's got an $8 million real estate portfolio with over 29 doors in California, and he's a GP on a deal in Florida. Welcome to the show, Vince. How are you? You know, Shannon, I'm going to take you with me everywhere I go just to pump people up. That <laughs> yeah. sound. I was like, who's that guy? I want to meet that guy. Do you know him? Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, look, we met at the Jason Hartman event and we got to talking and you're, you're doing some pretty crazy stuff. In fact, I think, didn't you say you had a closing today? Yeah, I'm actually closing on a duplex in Placentia. Awesome. So how are you still finding your way with the W-2? This is the thing that a lot of people struggle with, right? If I've got a W-2 and I'm still doing my job, I can never succeed in real estate, but you do it and you do it well. In fact, you do it because you want to, not because you have to. Yeah, that is correct. So I actually, I'm an engineer. Uh, I'm in medical device industry and I, I do a lot of patent work in intellectual property. But over the years, I understood the concept of equity and working for money and you know replacing your time with just getting paid. So I kind of understood, like, I don't own any of the patents. So I don't really get any residual income, but it's a really good job. I have a really good career. But if you really want to get wealthy, you got to do something on the side. Like, that's how I really got started onto it. So now you're, I mean, you've got 29 units in California. And for those of you that are sitting there in Kentucky going, wow, 29 units, that's not my, well, you know, none of these have wheels on them. So there's that, right? But the reality is, when you're looking at building a portfolio, it's the repetition over and over and over again. And so you must have a system down that allows you to do this because you're still working. Yeah. So I started off in Bakersfield, California, actually. And that's where I, I got my you know start. So I actually do uh, almost all of my deals with my buddy, Andrew. Uh, we interviewed you on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, Audi Social. So he's kind of like my guy who kind of takes over management. So, you know, in the beginning, I was really curious and I was really into it. So like nerding out. So I used to do all the work. So I would say the first two, three years, I did almost 90% of all the work, but I still split my partnership, everything I owned with this guy, Andrew, who happens to be my best friend too. So then, you know, a lot of people are like, why are you doing that? But for me, I can see the value in him for the future. So he has a successful guitar and music school business in Orange County. It's actually very popular in Orange County, his school. 
I knew how good he runs his operations and, you know, he's making money. So I knew in time I would be able to develop him into the main guy, like the operations guy, which he yeah. is. Now I do, I would say less than 10% of operations. He kind of does everything. So, so you were the guy that put everything together. You were the builder if you will. Mm -hmm. And now you've got the manager that's taking care of it on a daily basis, which, you know, as far as partnership goes, there's a lot to be said for that ability to understand that certain people have certain places at certain times in the deal. And it's not always needed up front. In fact, a lot of it can be done after the fact can be done later because you're able to see that down the road is when the other guy kicks in. Yeah. So it really, you know, we talked about this at the Jason Hartman event too. It's like, it's just, uh, you need to find valuable people who are actually willing to work and are, are helping you build the empire, right? The best way yeah. to do that is give them ownership, right? right. If you own 50% of a multi-million dollar real estate company, you're going to be pretty motivated to do that. Yeah. Now, if I give him 5% or 10% and I say, I'm the boss and you are then it's not going to be as good. But you also have to find people who actually you know are capable of that kind of yeah. stuff. Well, and you know, the other thing too, I mean, you, you you touch on a couple of good things there with partnerships. You know, partnerships, I've found that I've done some great partnerships with good people and bad documents. And I've done some terrible partnerships with good documents and bad people. And what I find is that you probably do too, that that if you're both headed the same direction, you use the document as the guideline, but you're both wanting to build the same thing. You're both wanting to succeed. And in that you're, you're working together on things and you're, you're finding common ground. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's such a good point. What you said about uh, good documents and bad people and, you know, <laughs> bad documents and good people, good people and bad documents will always win. Like, you know, in the beginning, uh, when I started buying this real estate, it was all trust. And I actually had 100% ownership of almost all the assets. It was, it was up to a couple million and uh, Drew had nothing. The reason I was doing that was because I wanted to split how many loans we can take. And he has his job. I have a job. So I was doing all these things, right? But you have to be on next level trust to kind of do this, right? Obviously, now we have a holding company and we own everything 50-50. It's easy. But even then... Drew's living in a house, which I just own. He's not even on title yet, but I'm going to put him on title because we are waiting for the LLC to show up. So I just, I just got the LLC back today. So it's going to go into that LLC, but it's all trust. There's nothing there. It's like, a, it's not even a handshake. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's for my listeners, that's not wise. We're not advocating. Yeah. I think Don't do that. <laughs> what Vince is saying is that when you, when you work with somebody who is your best friend and you can do that. This is the way you set it up. You've got to have that clarity of vision. You've got to have that clarity of focus so that you're both working toward the same thing at the same time. Otherwise, you're going to have problems. But what you very clearly point out is that you guys have maximized the system and you're continuing to build that. And Vince, you're doing your job and your partner's doing his job and everybody's functioning as a whole. And that's really what you're looking for is that team effort because We've all worked in partnerships and been a part of partnerships where somebody feels like they're doing everything. And while I I hear you on that, you did all the work up front. Now it's time for him to run the show and everything like that. So as you continue to acquire, I think you're the acquisition specialist. You know, he's the he's the operations manager. You're going to continue to see that and continue to grow that. What do you see interest rates? doing right now? What do you see the market doing right now? What do you see tenants doing right now? 
Yeah, so I I am very big into the macros and what Jason and Kenny and like George even like talks about a lot, right? So I I, I try to spend a lot of time on those, and I do try to time the market. So last year I knew we were at the lowest rates, and the Feds were talking about. You know, I listened to Kathy Fedkey; she was on my podcast. She said, you know, you need to start thinking about liquidating some of those and moving into better areas. So I actually did that. I almost got out of most of the properties in Bakersfield and I started buying an Inland Empire, which is um, away from like Riverside area in Orange County last year, right? So I started going to B, B plus, I even have A properties now, right? So those kind of tenants, they tend to have something to lose. So they always pay on time and stuff like that. So I, I do that. Now, going back to the interest rate conversation, you know, the feds are still pumping up the interest rates. I, I believe they will probably jack it up another 25 bips next week. Um, but they're trying to hit the terminal rate of 5%. We're seeing, we're seeing the effects of it now. We're seeing the banks collapse, right? Uh, yeah. We saw the interest rate pull back a little bit. We gained about, you know, 50, 75 points in like a week, which is good. I think uh, if you follow how CPI is calculated, there's three consecutive months in the summer, which is going to be replaced with year over year. That's three points right there in CPI. Now, if you just get 0.1, 0.2, or 0.3, you're going to jack down the CPI from it's already at six. It'll probably be in the fours by summer, I would think. Right. Unless something crazy happens and they're bailing out all these banks again. You know, they're like, oh, it's not taxpayer money. I'm like, it's taxpayer money because it's going to be inflationary. Yeah. Yeah. No, and you know what? Look, here's the deal, man. It, It doesn't matter where it comes when it comes from government. It's coming from us because yeah. the whole process with government is that they are, they're our extension. Government has no money on its own. It only yeah. has what we give it. So to say something as audacious as, you know, it, it's not going to cost the, the taxpayer, that's a whole lot of uh, garbage there because it is definitely going to cost us because it is our money. Everything government has is our money. So and I see a lot of the same things that you're talking about, but where do you think that's going to put demand for rental properties in the next, call it 12 months? So right now, there's um, since the interest rates are really high, not a lot of people can afford it. So if you can get deals and you know you can bounce on some good areas, good properties, I would say it's a good time. Because once the interest rates drops, then you're kind of a little bit late to the property. So, I mean, late to the deal, right? So you would want to follow people like, you know, listen to, you know, Shannon's podcast or to Kathy's, you know, all the other guys, they, uh, you know, bigger pockets, they talk about how the Fed's shifting, they might pivot and they might hint at pivoting. Those kind of things, when the interest rate drops, the asset prices are going to jack up again, right? So you want to be a little bit ahead of what everybody else is doing. So that's, that's the, for that, you have to be always in the game every day. You need to know what's MBS, like what's happening with the interest rates. Oh, it went down, go up. Should I lock it now? All those things, you know? So you got to be on top of things. You can. And Vince, you know, I, I applaud you because, I mean, you know, it takes a lot of study to get to a place where you're at, where you know the kind of things that you know and you're able to see the kind of things. And, and I agree with you. You know, the Fed always transmits what they're going to do. They're always talking about what they're going to do prior to doing it. Nothing the Fed does is ever a surprise, right? Mm-hmm. They they do this thing where they like the market to know what they're thinking so that the market starts to react early instead of coming out and saying, hi, I haven't talked to you all in a couple months. Uh, by the way, we're raising rates and have everybody just absolutely lose their minds, right? Mm-hmm. But the other side of that is you 
I look at things a whole lot differently and just go, hey, does this deal pencil? Meaning, does this deal cash flow? And if I can get it to cash flow today, what's wrong with doing the deal now? Now, if I can't get it to cash flow and I need the market to do something, then I got to do that smart boy stuff that you do where I try and figure out what the market's going to do and how it's going to react. But if this thing will cash flow today and I have the money to buy it today, what's wrong with just being just being able to buy it like that? Yeah, there's there's nothing wrong. Uh, what where people uh, forget is also you you probably just forgot is you're not a regular person. You have so much experience. Your parents are in real estate. You're just like dissolved in real estate. You're just like a real real estate blob. Like you're just like yes, I know these things, right? So most people, I would say, don't know crap about real estate, and they're going to be like, oh, everybody's buying. I'm going to buy. And they're That's like, true. wait. And they proved and, that they proved that last year, right? Everybody was buying, yeah. everybody was buying, and prices were going nuts. And everybody's looking at it going, Well, did you get one of these? No, I didn't get one of those. You better get one of those. You're gonna lose out. Yeah. Yeah. And then and then you 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 go home and <laughs> you do the right. PITI and you're like, wait, what? What? So NOI is this, and then I'm losing, I'm on negative caps. My interest rate is higher than the cap rate. What does that mean? That means you fucked up. Like you're yeah. gonna you're gonna yeah. lose money. You've been yeah. on the ball no, of money. And that's so true because, you know, you don't see that. And and you're right. I do forget that I've grown up in a real estate household and I've always been about cash flow. In fact, uh, it's just the guy down the hall just told me today, he says, I don't know that you would do anything if there wasn't an ROI attached to it. And that's not entirely true, but it's pretty true because if there's not a cash flow to it, it's really hard to sustain it because even if you are making a lot of money, if you've got one or two things that are dragging you down or that a negative cash flow every single month and you continue to put those out there, you're going to eventually build something that is going to suck away all your cash and not return capital. And at what point were you betting on that returning capital as the market had to get better than today in order for that deal to work? And that may not be the case for a while. So when you do your deals, you make sure that your positive cash flow. We were talking about this, and you're in the high, high appreciation market of California. Those markets don't tend to cash flow. Those markets don't tend to make a lot of money. So how do you overcome that to make sure that you're getting cash flow, even a nominal amount, on your deals? Yeah, so that's a great question. So most people do not invest in California because, you know, I like to call it the Communist Republic of California. So it's it's very difficult. So you want to stay out of certain counties like LA and stuff where you don't have to still don't have to pay rent three years after the pandemic and the unemployment rate is 3.4%. And they go, you know what? Don't pay rent. It's all right. Just buy cars. You know, so that those kind of things are ridiculous. So I tend to stick a little bit to red counties, you know. Yeah. Orange County is pretty red and it's uh, it's it's better. The way I actually figured out how to do uh cash flows is you actually had her on your podcast, Ziana, and I talked to her friend. Sarah Weaver, she was on mine yeah. and I figured out, okay, the long-term rental market in California is not really cutting it. I'll be right. losing the, the property I'm buying today. I'll probably lose about two to $3,000 a month on if I did long-term. However, I have about six, seven Airbnb midterm rentals already, which Drew's been running for over a year now and he's getting pretty confident. So when you put that on there, you could get about 50 to 100% more rents. Yeah. From the tenants than your long-term rental. Now you're looking at almost hitting, almost hitting 1% rule in California and Orange County, which is like the best market. I mean, it's a neighborhood, I would say. I won't say it's the best because, you know, other things, but 
it's one of the best, right? So if you can get that kind of play, and if I can just hold on to the property for let's say a year at 7%, I know the 7% is not going to last. And my I don't have prepaid, it's Fannie Freddie loans. It's, you know, there's no, I could just refinance anytime I want after six months. If I can reduce it to a 6%, I'm going to save about $7,500 a year. If I reduce it to 5%, I'm going to save about $1,500, $15,000 a year. So that's that's good stuff. So th- now I'm going to be cash flowing heavily. And what happens in those meantime? They're going to be printing money. They're going to be devaluing the stuff, right? So then it's going to get easier for me. Which is true. And you know that's what, I mean, Kenny McElroy says all the time. You're paying today's debt with tomorrow's money. You know, Mm -hmm. saying that another way is that they're continuing to print money, which means that they're continuing to raise that and continuing to lower the value of what is in your hand today. But your payment doesn't change. You're still Mm -hmm. only required to pay them the same amount that you paid them this whole time. Right. Yeah. It's it's a very interesting concept that a lot of people miss. So, for example, I'm sitting in right now. I have a podcast. This is my home. Uh, I live in Orange County. I bought this for a million one last year and the interest rate was three and a half percent. People said, bro, it was two point seven five. This is too high. You shouldn't be buying this. This is a bad deal. And I said, I don't think you understand how this works. Let me show you. So I bought this house, right? And I have an Airbnb in the back and I have a roommate, right? It cost me about six, $7,000 a month to run it. But my money out of pocket that I put in to live in here, million dollar freaking house in Orange County by the beach, it's about $2,000. Guess right. how much I was paying in rent when I was living in rent? Uh, you know, it was about $2,000 each, right? Yeah. So now what are the chances in the last 15 months that I've gotten a raise? Hundred percent. I got a raise since the last fifteen months, right? So what happens? So now it becomes easier for me to service this debt, right? And every year it's going to get easier because the Airbnb, if I'm doing daily average rates of um, hundred dollars, is going to be hundred and ten, hundred and twenty. In two years, it's going to be one fifty. Right. And I'm going to increase the rents for my roommate, right? Very slow, very little, but I'm going to get raises. So in like about five, ten years, this six thousand dollar mortgage will be a joke for me. Like I won't even see it go out. That's right. the real way. And that's true. So you're paying less than the than your roommate. I mean, if you guys were there together, yeah, you, sure. you would be, you know, you would be cash flowing. It was really mm-hmm. what you're saying. And so I'm getting tax benefits. You're getting tax benefits. You're getting all the kind of things that come with real estate, which is really intelligent. And as that grows, yes, you're paying the same mortgage. That mortgage rate will not change as long as you have that in effect. Your value is going up because the printed dollars that you're being exchanged for your work or your Airbnb time for all those things is less, it's worth less. So they're giving you more of them to equal what it was back when you started this game. And at the end of the day, you have a very viable thing that yes, you're right. In 10 years, it will be, you will be able to move out. You won't need a roommate, uh, all those different kinds of things that will allow you to get that done in a, in a very, very simple way and make money at it and be able to be in a place where now you still have that million dollar home by the beach that you can sell for a lot more that somebody else paid for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just had to come up with a down payment and the, even the down payment for this house, I called my sister, she dropped in a few G's and guess what? She gets equity in the house and right. you know, she doesn't do anything. She just right. collects, you know, yeah. Hey, that's not nice to say about your sister not doing anything. Come on. <laughs> so, so Vince, Love my sister, my sister owns my estate, so she's doing fine. <laughs> so what are you, what are you planning on for the next 
12 months for real estate. As we look at the market that we have, we see what's going on. What do you see as the terminus of, of, of your real estate investing career? So I still have about four properties, uh, 10 doors in Bakersfield. Um, I forget how much they're worth, but I have about 400 plus thousand in equity. So I will be liquidating that. And then I, there's a, there's a, a mansion, two mansions, uh, duplex, three houses from my house. I put in an offer. It was at 1.75. I put in at 1.36. They're like yelling and throwing stones at me every day because it's a ridiculous low offer, but I'm negotiating. So I, I'm still wanting to buy in Orange County and uh, leverage it and use uh, midterm rentals and rent by the rooms and try to make that cash flow. But I also have my buddy Rob, who has a lot of uh, another Rob um, in Tennessee, and he's got midterm rentals and he's very he's got some doors there. So I will be flying to Tennessee to start buying, picking up some assets in like Chattanooga or even like Nashville. I've got some friends in in Chattanooga, and it it is a buying opportunity. But it's funny because you know. Everybody sees that, hey, this market isn't hasn't got the attention. So everybody jumps on it and pummels it. And then it's then it's overpriced. Then they go to the next one. They, you know, but what is it about when you look at a market? How are you evaluating that this is the place to buy? It's it can't purely be priced. What are the other factors that you've got to have in a market for you to jump in and go, hey, I'm all in, I'm throwing down some money? Yeah. So definitely price is probably the least thing I look for. It's it's uh, it's based off of how much returns can you get for dollar investor, right? So it's like kind of like camp rate, but I also want to look at population growth. Uh, what's the median income? What's the price of the house, right? So I want to look at that. Can people afford it? Or is there more incoming traffic? Are, are people, are, are there some stuff building? I like to, I want to buy uh, like nice houses near hospitals and stuff so you can get those traveling nurses. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go big on midterm rentals the next uh, year or so. So mm -hmm. that's that's going to be my focus. I wanted to do the stuff that you did. And I spent more than a year. I hang out with the Jake and Gina guys from the South. And I, I got 2% ownership in this you know $6 million, 44 unit in Lakeland, Florida. Yeah. But the amount of work that goes on and the amount of equity I get, it's it's a little, it's it's less. But I like that it's so hands-off. So I like that part. But this is more exciting because with these properties, the way Drew and I do it, we collect, you know, 50% equity on every deal with yeah. the same amount of money raised for the bigger deals. I'm getting 5% or less. Yeah. Well, and that's where, you know, look, everybody says that, you know, multifamily is where it's at and you got to do this and you got to do that. You know, I've always had two big sections of my portfolio. One is multifamily because, you know, look, I'm, I'm also in the market of sales, and so I have to build what they want, right? But mm -hmm. the other side is I've always had a lot of industrial properties because industrial is solid. It is something that just sits there and takes care of itself and does its deal, and you don't have to worry about it. I mean, strength from, from day to day, it's really, really solid stuff. And the reality is when people go in all, all in on one asset class, like we just mentioned earlier, whether it's a, a town or an asset class, Things get over pulverized. And I love the way that you're looking at it going, yeah, the crowd's over there doing that thing. And that's cool. But I'm doing my thing right here and I'm doing really well at my thing. So I don't really need to go do their thing. And I think that that is the sign of somebody that has a higher intelligence level, in my opinion, because they're not always just following the crowd to follow the crowd. They're doing what makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense, then they're not going to do it. Yeah, I know. Uh, you know, I had Ashley Wilson on here. I don't know if you know Ashley and uh, Neil Bawa and those guys. So I was talking to them and, you know, 
you know, you know this better than anyone. It's like, you know, you improve, improve the NOI, reduce the expenses, and, you know, the cap rate stays the same. You, you, you're now bringing in lots of money, like millions of dollars. You can force appreciation, right? But, you know, with the single family stuff, one to four units, I mean, they do go up three to 5% a year if you look at the last 50 years yeah. since World War II. And that's like, that's a low number, right? So yeah. I'm getting that anyway. So, and, and, you know, the reality is, I mean, and this is where we're at, right? As, as cap rates expand again, if you're betting on it being just like yesterday, you're going to have a surprise coming and it's not going to be a good one. But if you're looking at things going, well, you know, I wasn't really planning on that price anyway. I'm going to ride this surfboard for another 10 years. 10 years from now, I'll be in a totally different place and it will make sense at that time. It's not so bad. But when you're, you know, everybody I think has gotten into the let's do it in 24 months where we buy a $20 million asset, flip the asset and make a 35% IRR for our investors in 24 months. And that time isn't real anymore. It still yeah. happens. There's still unicorns out there. There's still things to buy. There's still things to do. But at the end of the day, for reals, Real estate needs to be looked at like you're looking at it going, hey, 10 years from now, it's a whole different argument. You got to get through the first 10 on the deal. And then you're starting to look at what's real and you're starting to hang on for a long term. Yeah, man. Well said. Yeah, that's true. A lot of people forget. Yeah, you can increase the NOI. And then if the cap rate stays the same, you do get obviously more money. And if you do if it's a heavy value add, that's definitely a thing in, in multifamily. However, you don't control the cap rate. A lot of people forget. Right. It's like, right. like, oh yeah, the cap rate. I'm like, that's not you. That's the market decides what. <laughs> yeah. And, and the the majority of of what dictates that in the market is the interest rate and is yeah. the cash flow. You know, when you're dropping your interest rates to two percent, three percent on institutional money, you can afford to give a four cap on a property. You can't afford to give a four cap on a property when you're paying 6% for interest, because now you're just setting yourself up to lose money every week, right? Yeah. I mean, think about right now, you know, uh, I mean, you're getting assumable four, that's pretty good. But let's say most people, they're getting six, six and a right, half, right, and right, the caps right. are at four. That means you're you're losing money on borrowed money, right? So that's right. very interesting. That's, that's not good. You would be better off, honestly, to convince your investors to pay all cash for it, if that was your play, because then at least you would be getting 4% on mm -hmm. the four cap rather than losing two. See, the whole point, this is what people forget, Vince, the whole point of the bank is to involve a silent partner at a fixed rate at, with really no discretion in how things go for the next up to 30 years, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. For the next 30 years, you got to stay there and do it at 4% or 6% or whatever the deal is, whatever we made the deal on. And at the end of that, I'm in control and I'm leveraging you but when people get into these places and they go, oh, my gosh, the interest rates at, at 7%, 8%, I just lower the amount of leverage we get. Because when you're taking that leverage out of it and you're going, hey, let's go to 60% leverage. Let's go to 50% leverage. Because at 50% leverage, I know that I'm guaranteed myself on a seven cap deal, I've guaranteed myself a 7% return. Or if I, if I bought a 4% return, I'm getting 4% on 50% of the money. Mm -hmm. And... I don't know how I run through that upside down part. My mind doesn't do that. But when I look at it, I go, I'm buying a six cap in industrial with 4% assumable. I'm still arbitraging two points on the bank's money, right? Yeah. That's the whole game is to leverage the bank and to use their money. People that haven't figured that out, they're going to struggle because at the end of the day, they're sitting there going, well, now the bank's money is more than mine. So I got to pay to have a partner. 
why not just have a partner? Why not just have a partner that says, I'll take what you can give me for cash flow rather than the cash flow and then some? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know, man. Investors are in a weird spot. So what are your next moves over the uh, the next 12 months? What are you going to continue to do? Yeah. So like we talked about, I'm going to pick up some more properties in Orange County, make sure that they don't, they're not negative cash flow right. and then get rid of the ones in Bakersfield. Uh, probably I'll probably keep one or two, but I'll probably right. get rid of the rest, but eventually get rid of everything. And then also start uh, buying in Tennessee. I have some, my family's got some stuff in India and we're starting to liquidate it. So if I can move uh, about a million bucks here, I could buy like, you know, $4 million worth of real estate. So right. that's pretty good. Now let's talk about that. In India, can you get leverage like you can get here? I don't think we have 30-year fixed mortgages like that. And then the interest rates are not as low. It's it's pretty high. We have high yeah. inflation too. Yeah. Well, and and you know, I also learned something today that India is the world's largest importer of arms for the fourth year in a row. Oh yeah. And guess who sells the most? US. Well, yeah, that's because we're stupid. But anyway. Uh, so when you look at that, that's the funny thing too. A lot of people look at our real estate game. I was talking with a gentleman from New Zealand mm-hmm. and the longest real estate note you can get is, is five years in New Zealand. Oh, wow. It, it'll amortize over 30, but you can only get a five-year note. So that's mm-hmm. the, and that is absolutely the best because nobody does what we do. And when you think about it, really the banking that we have, and you look at our fractional banking system and the mess that it is and the SVBs that are failing and all that stuff. We are a subsidized banking economy. And so look at our mortgage rate. Mortgage rates are subsidized by the Fed. They're controlled. When you look at where you go elsewhere, you're not going to get the leverage. You're not going to get the, the, you're not going to get anything like you have here, including the long-term lock on your money to where you could lock something up for 30 years and make somebody else commit to 30 years in that investment with you at a set rate. Crazy stuff. I mean, it is really crazy stuff. If you really look at international politics and uh, how the money is printed in different countries, you know, as most people, probably your audience probably knows, you know, we trade oil in U.S. dollars right after the the agreement we had after World War II. So we do have that benefit, which means you can, U.S. will never default on their money. Do you know why? We just print more. They'll just print and pay you back, right? So that we have that option. So we will never be second class, right? But there is other stuff that's going on with like BRICS and uh, other countries trying to develop their own stuff. So with these kind of things, you know, we do have that opportunity to build wealth using borrowed money. So when I go tell people like, hey, you know, you should invest in real estate. They're like, no, it's risky. I'm like, you have 200 grand in your bank. I already borrowed it. I'm already using it. I already took a loan. You're not getting paid. I'm just trying to give you equity in my deal, but I'm going to take your money either way. Like right. because you don't understand the game. So that's very interesting that people you know, don't it, get it. And it is. And and especially when you look at, you know, SVB, I mean, they had what, $16 million in, in liquid assets. Is that? I, I think, I think billion. But yeah, 16 billion, $16 billion in liquid assets is all they had, but they were said to be a $131 billion valued bank. And and when I look at banks, man, I'm I'm just dumb contractor. All I've ever thought is the bank is worth what's inside of it. The bank is worth the loans and the notes and the and the cash and all that stuff. But you know, when they had that run on the banks, then all of a sudden they had forty-two billion dollars go out. They only had sixteen on hand. They had to sell a bunch of stuff. They had to do some stuff. By the end of the day, just like that, they crashed. And you know the crazy thing about that, Vincent, is that they crashed. Because they bet on U.S. Treasuries. 
That was the big thing that took them down, right? They had a pile of U.S. Treasuries that were losing value as interest rates went up. Why their management didn't see to sell that, I, I do not know. But how, what a mind bender that is that the bank failed holding U.S. Treasuries as its security. But think about how stupid these guys are, right? I mean, this everybody does this, but they're saying inflation is 9% and they lock their money for 30 years at 2%. Like you should be shocked. Like if you right. did that, like right. for 30 years. Yeah. Now, if they did for three month treasury bond, okay, fine. You're getting three, 4%. That's, that's not bad. You can always liquidate it, right? 30 yeah. years, really? Like that's yeah. how stupid these guys are? Yeah. So they're completely locked up, tied down and no way out. And, and you know, that's a majority of what they had on hand. You know, yeah. that's that's just crazy when you think about that right yeah that's that's crazy I, I never understood why people will put money i mean the fed has meetings which is already a scam the the cpi reported and they're telling you inflation at six percent right. and then they're telling you the third year will pay you three percent and you're still doing it like they just told you you're losing three percent yeah you know it, it is funny because a lot of people don't see that for what it is but where do you think the banking system's going now that we've had three banks fail in the last week well, I mean, you know, usually it's a big scare if you raise the interest rate by half a point or a point in a year. Right. We went from three to seven percent, right? Or from zero to five percent or whatever the feds are doing, right? They want it to break. That's why they're doing it. They want right. it to break. And then they're probably their argument is like we can always bail out a few, which you know totally goes out. And then, you know, overall they're doing, they're thinking they're doing a more noble thing. That's, that's what the feds are trying to do. Right. I mean, every time they say we gain half a million jobs, they come and cry. They're like, oh, look at this. This is garbage. Yeah. We're doing yeah. great. The best yeah. in the world. We hate this. <laughs> well, and, and, you know, they've got to, they've got to slow it down because I, here's my take on it. Mm -hmm. I think that we have inflation, not because of too many other things. I mean, I know we printed a bunch of money, but I think we have a lot of inflation that is driven by scarcity. If you really look at a straight capitalistic market, let's just play that we're just totally capitalistic. I only make widgets that sell and you only buy widgets that are valuable, right? Okay. I just got a quote. I'm doing a tenant improvement in one of my buildings. I got a quote that the, that the electrical panel that we want is 19 weeks out. Mm -hmm. You know what I did? I offered the electrician five grand to find me another panel. That's inflation, right? I'm yeah. willing to pay more for something. I'm willing to pay for something because I need it. And I think that a lot of this is we're seeing the demand. Yes, obviously, we created scarcity with the gas. It was shutting down the Keystone Pipeline. We created scarcity with, with you know blowing up the Nord Stream 2 Pipeline. We create scarcity with all this stuff. China's actually, for the first time in history, got a declining population, which is where 90% of our goods and services and you know, Frisbees are made. But at the end of the day, when you really drive with scarcity, if everybody's selling hamburgers and you can get a hamburger wherever you want, it's not hard. And it's and it's cheap. When there's only one guy in town that's selling that hamburger or one guy that has that electrical panel or one guy that has what you need, you are really doing a lot of things differently. And when you're running with that scarcity mentality, you're always overpaying for it, even though you're creating jobs because you're trying to fuel an economy that is starved and constricted. I like your thought. And I'm going to take your thought and blow it out of proportion, which is, I think, what's happening. What you're saying is true, right? Yep. Now, the same guy, there's one guy who's making hamburgers, and then there's nobody else making hamburgers. That's the scarcity. That's, that's right. you know, people are willing to pay more. Now, I tell everybody else who's not making hamburgers, I'm going to send you checks for $4,000 a month for not making hamburgers. 
Right. And then you're like, wait, what? What does that mean? Like, that means we're all going to get paid paper dollars, which doesn't mean anything. And then nobody else is going to do actually services to actually make that dollar worth anything. That's right. when you're going to get jacked up. And that's what we did for two, three years. That's insane. Yeah. No, and I totally get that. So now you have lots of dollars laying around. You got people that have been disincentivized to not make hamburgers, but at the same time, you still only have one guy making hamburgers, right? Yeah. And and I I mean, we've seen, you know, right here in Boise, Micron Technologies is is doing a $13 billion expansion. You know, you look at Phoenix, Arizona, they're getting a what is that, a five or an eight billion dollar Toshiba plant that they're, I mean, just blowing this thing up because they're re- what do they, they call it? Repatriating uh, all these jobs that have been overseas that we haven't had control of because we're tired of getting jerked around on it. And that's kind of, yeah, so we got to fix this scarcity. But I think that when we look at what the Fed is doing, they're combining all this into one big pile and saying it's all inflation and all inflation is bad. I don't think all inflation is bad when you look at where the root cause of it is and how it's getting there. But that's just one guy in Idaho, man, talking to another guy in Orange County. No, man. I mean, you have some good points. If people really want to see like how all these things work is uh, what you're talking about is deglobalization. Because of globalization, we started relying on other countries a lot and we found the cracks that we had because we rely on China a lot. Right. So, you know, um, China is messing up really big time because they because of the one child policy. Now they're going to be crashing. Right. right, right so right. all those things. So, you know, if China is going to aggressive stance towards Hong Kong and like Taiwan, you don't want to have all the semiconductor stuff tied up in Taiwan. So now Korea, Samsung is going to build something in Korea. Um, U.S. is building a lot in Phoenix and, uh, you know, other areas. And then they're also uh, building stuff in India, too. So you, right. they're going to take away the power from countries that they don't really trust. But, you know, I always like to end with like more positive stuff. So I would say definitely, you know, like our inflation is bad and stuff. But, uh, you know, like Jason says, compared to what, right? We are literally the best in the world right now. Yeah, and yeah. the only country where you can actually raise interest rates and bring down inflation. No other country can do that right now. Like right. everybody else is messed up, right? So we still have like a lot of lots of ways to go because increasing it by 5% to 5% and employment being this low and the economy is still positive GDP. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, Hey man, Vince, it's been great cutting it up with you here on the real estate rundown. I really appreciate you showing up and giving us the knowledge. You know, it's not often that I get to talk with somebody that understands the macro as well as you do. So kudos on the study, man. And best of luck with your next endeavors as you move cross country with, uh, with your real estate acquisitions. Thank you, Shannon. Uh, let's hang out uh, at uh, Limitless. Yeah, we'll see you at Limitless. But how can everybody get a hold of you? Yeah, the best way to get a hold of me is uh, Instagram, which is just uh, on the invest, A-N-V-I, which is Andrew and Vince, invest one word. Also, we have a RE social podcast on all platforms. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Vince, for being with us at the Real Estate Rundown. For those of you that are joining us Give us a like and a subscribe where you're at and on the platform you like this at and send me your feedback. If you want to get in touch with me, it's shannonrobnet.com. Follow me there. Connect with me there. You can get straight to my calendar and we can have a conversation just like Vince and I did. Until next time, guys, keep doing what you're doing. That's a wrap for today's episode of The Real Estate Rundown. Let these newfound strategies pave the way to start a successful career or a profound rebranding. If you loved everything you have heard, listen to more conversations at www.shannonrobnet.com. And be sure to leave a rating, share it with your friends, and subscribe. Until the next episode.